So uh, today we're going to be reading from a text found in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, uh, which we've worked with in the past here, but for those of us who maybe it's your first Sunday here, or uh, maybe it's your first time in church in a long time, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the really most important thing for us to know today is that the Roman church was a divided church. It was a church comprised of Jews and Gentiles uh, who did not always see eye to eye, frequently did not see eye to eye. And so um, his job in that letter to the church in Rome is to try to lift up a Christian theology that um, honors the Jewish tradition but also makes room for a whole breadth of new people called Gentiles to be a part of the church. And so the, the reading, that, the reason that's important is our, our text this morning comes from chapter 1 of that letter. So he's really laying the groundwork here. He's just getting his introductions underway. But there's some important words for us this morning, uh, beginning in, in verse uh, 16, uh, that we're going to read. Uh, you'll see it on the screens. Uh, we've got our, I think this morning we have the Common English Bible version. Yes? Okay. I'll read it for us. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. So he's making clear this is something available for everybody. To the Jew first... And also the Gentiles. So already he's trying to weave with a deft hand to the Jew first, but then also to the Gentile, to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written. He's saying through the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written. The one who is righteous will live by faith. Then he goes on, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. We're going to unpack this in a second. Because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. So we're going to stop this morning. So... Um, Paul, in typical Paul fashion, he starts out with this really lovely, you know, the gospel is about faith, faith for faith. God's righteousness is built through faith. Also, God's wrath is coming on everybody. And you're like, oh, Paul, oh, man, drink some coffee, brother. You know, chill out, chill out, chill out. Um, but it's what he says here that's really important. On the one hand, he's talking about the gospel and the power of the gospel and the uniqueness of the story of Jesus. But at the same time, he's saying that there's this there's wrath of God. That's the language we see in the New Testament that really is about God's divine justice. This divine justice, um, it, it's, it's about everybody in the world because everybody in the world can know about God to some degree simply because they live in the world, right? There's something about living in this world that if you, if you spend much time in this place, there will be something, something about living here that will make you think, I, I feel like there's something more going on than just me and my little existence. There's something bigger about this place. Have you ever had those moments in your own life where you have felt like, you know, I can't put my finger on it, but there's something about this place that tells me there's something bigger than me out there. Anybody in here ever had an experience like that? Yeah, we're going to talk about that today. Before we get there, let, let, let's talk about what this scripture really is about and what we're going to spend our time today talking about. Today is going to be kind of a teaching sermon a little bit. Because um, I, I, I want to prepare us for this Advent season that's coming up, which is this season when we receive the infant Jesus, the baby Jesus, sweet seven pounds, six ounce baby Jesus for my Talladega Nights fans in the room. Um, it's the season when we receive Christ, but more than that, we, we begin to receive the story 
of Christ. Again, you know, the Christian calendar is a beautiful thing. Every year we come back time and time again to receive this story of Christ. And it begins with this birth and it ends with his resurrection and we get to be taken on this journey. And I want to prepare us for that because I think sometimes in the holidays we can get a little routine, yeah? It can be a little routine. We, we, we go through the same motions every year. And Christmas isn't so much about receiving the gift of the infant Christ as much as it is about just surviving, Yeah? <laughs> How many of us are just already looking forward to January 1? Can I just get through it, please? Like you're already looking forward to when your kids go back to school after the winter break. They're not even on break yet. Like you got to slow down. So in, in theology, in theological worlds, we, we, before we can ever talk about God, before we can talk about baby Jesus, before we can talk about Easter Jesus, before we can talk about any of that stuff, we have to talk about how it is that we know about God. That's the first thing we have to talk about. Before you can talk about something, you have to talk about how you know about it in the first place. Especially if that something is the creator of the known universe. Yeah, You should probably address why it is you know anything about this thing, this person, this being in the first place. Now, I am really bad at intuiting in my life. Any other bad intuitors? Like I have to have things spelled out for me very plainly. Very clearly. My wife is an amazing intuitor. She can walk into a room. She probably right now could walk around to every person without you saying a word and could say exactly what it is that's on your heart. Like she, she is so gifted at reading emotions and reading the room and reading people's situations and their feelings. I am terrible at it. Anybody else in here feel my pain? Today is our anniversary. We've been married for six years and we're just beginning. Yes. Yes, I had to work that in or I'd have been in trouble later on. Um, We've been married for six years and we're we're still figuring out what it means to be in a relationship where one of us is very good at intuiting and the other person is not. Because I'll walk in and I'll say, hey, how's everything going? And everything's fine. And so I think, wonderful, I'll continue on my day. And nope, that was the wrong answer, Dee Dee. That was the wrong answer. That's not what she meant. When she said fine, there was like 14 chapters and layers to that answer of fine that I... For the life of me, I can't figure out, right? Because I am a finite person. My brain is finite. My ability to read emotions is so small, so desperately small. And my wife, she's got this infinite capacity. So in the same way, we are like me, and God is like my wife. It is my anniversary, yes. She likes this metaphor, yeah. Humans are so crazy finite in our ability to comprehend. There's not much that I understand outside of my small little microcosm of a world. And yet, I'm supposed to be in pursuit of this big, amazing, wonderful creator God who's also actively involved in my day-to-day life. How in the world am I supposed to know anything about this guy? How do I know anything about this God that's so massively bigger than I am? And, And the answer is that God has to reveal God's self to me, just like Reagan has to explain what fine really means, even though she shouldn't have to. She shouldn't have to. But she does. (laughs) God has to reveal God's self to us because otherwise we would just be plain out of luck. So today we're going to talk about two ways that God reveals God's self to us. The first is this way that we call general revelation. And the second is the way we call special revelation. You might think you've heard this term revelation and that's like a book in the Bible and isn't that scary and about the apocalypse. No. Incorrect. The word revelation in theology simply means this this moment of knowing, right? The book Revelation is John's moment of knowing about the end of times. It's actually a happy ending. But when we talk in theology about revelations, the general revelation is this general way of knowing about God. 
This way of knowing that, that Paul talks about in this letter to Rome is this way of knowing that comes from simply living in God's world. You begin to have this general knowing about God. And then there's this special way of knowing, the special revelation. We'll talk about that towards the end of the message. This is the person of Jesus Christ who we're about to receive in this Advent season. So today let's talk about the ways that we know about God generally and the ways that we know about God in a special Christ-centered, gospel-driven way. So general revelation is how everybody can know about God. This is everyone on the planet. I don't care if you're born in Mumbai, if you're born in Detroit, if you're born in Dallas, Texas, or if you're born in London, England. Everybody knows about God through general revelation. These are basic human experiences. How many of us have ever seen a beautiful sunset, a beautiful sunrise, something that made your jaw hit the ground? I had a teacher in high school who, um, he would have us, our class met at 7.30 in the morning. And it was a philosophy class. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, but I, every morning at 7.30, he would have us go outside and watch the sunrise. Because he said, every morning the sunrise is different. You're going to see a sunrise that no one else in the history of time is going to see exactly the same way. You shouldn't miss it. And so there's something about a sunrise or a sunset that can make your jaw hit the ground. It can make you think, man, maybe there's more to this life than just this. Or maybe for you, that moment when you felt like, you know, I feel like there's something bigger going on here. Maybe that was at the birth of your child. You've got a lot of families in the room. Maybe, maybe staring down at that face and sort of taking in the wonder of that moment. That, that was a moment that for you drew you out of your body for a second and went, oh, my God, what are we doing here? Or maybe for you, it'll be later today. When beyond all hope, the Cowboys beat the Eagles. Um, can we stop and pray for Chaz Green for a second? That dude needs to know Jesus. Like, I, you've got to protect the blind side, Chaz. Come on. Um, but no, there's moments in life when I, it doesn't matter where you're born. It doesn't matter your experience. There's those times when you feel like, man, there's something bigger going on here. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 1. This is what he means when he says this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, right? It's not like it smacks you up the head. It's not like there's a sign that says God is real, you know. I mean, there are movie posters that say God's not dead, but uh, anyways. Um, it's not like there's this big electric sign that like, oh, this is, what it, this is God. This is his action in your life. It's invisible, but it's been made to be seen, it's been made to be understood by us in limited ways, simply through living in this world. Now, this is a Methodist church, and so Methodist churches have this unique theology we call Wesleyan theology. It comes from a guy named John Wesley, who helped found our movement back in the, some long time ago. He's been dead for a while, um, but we thank him, we like him, he, had, you know, he was a good guy. He lived in England, he was an Anglican priest, and, and he began this revival in the, Anglican, in the Anglican church that he called Methodism. And one of the things that he really, really firmly believed in, he didn't invent it, but he really firmly believed in it and he uplifted it, was this idea of something called provenient grace. Provenient grace. Theology, we love big words <laughs> that are really hard to understand. Provenient grace is simply a term that means God's grace, God's love that is available to every single person, whether you're born in Mumbai or in Detroit or in Dallas, Texas, this is that, that aspect of God that is available to every single person. It's why we baptize infants. Last week we baptized an infant here. You might be thinking, but the infant doesn't know about Jesus. No, they don't. <laughs> we baptize them because we believe that it's God who first loves us. That it's God who loves every single soul on this planet, whether or not they're aware of God. 
And that's similar to the sort of this idea of general revelation, this general way of knowing about God. This is also God's general love, this provenient grace, this grace that was at work in your life before you ever set foot in a church, before you ever said a prayer to God, before you ever thanked God for a thing in your life, this grace and this love was already at work. So the two are very, very closely connected. Wesley said this about provenient grace. I love, I love going back and reading old writing. It makes me realize what a bad writer I am today. Like, we, we talk purdy today compared to, like, back in the day. Listen to what John Wesley says about provenient grace. He says, if we take this in its utmost extent, it will include all that is wrought in the soul by what is frequently termed natural conscience. Y'all still with me? But more properly, preventing grace, all the drawings of the Father, the desires of God, which, if we yield to them, increase more and more all the light wherewith the Son of God enlighteneth everyone that cometh into the world, showing every man to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with his God. All the convictions which his spirit from time to time works in every child of man. Now that inspires you, I know. I know it does like it does me. No, what he's saying, what he's saying, here's the line that I love. He says, all the light wherewith the Son of God enlightens everyone that comes into the world, showing every person, showing every person to do justly, this is straight from Micah, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. There is something about God's love in this world that lets everybody know that justice and mercy and humility are probably important. We see these aspects in every major world religion there is, yeah? This, I mean, this is confirmed stuff. Like, if you go around and you look at every major world religion, you're going to see things about justice. You're going to see things about mercy. You're going to see things about humility. I would say that all falls under the, the category of general revelation. There's this thing about being a human that makes you want to pursue God, and there's these common core beliefs that are going to come out of that. And John Wesley names this, and he says that's the preventing grace of God. That's the prevenient grace of God. That's the grace, the love that covers every single person. So if you've looked at your world and you've looked at it over their face, you've thought, man, they kind of sound similar. Like some, a lot of the aspects, there's a lot of crossover. There's a lot of carryover. If you spent time, if you have Jewish friends or Muslim friends or Buddhist friends or Zoroastrian friends, or we can get really far down the list, friends that believe in the flying spaghetti monster in space, I don't know. But there's these similar core beliefs that rise up out of these faiths that say justice is important, mercy is important, doing good, walking humbly, that, that's important. So the question for us becomes, is general revelation enough? Is it enough to say justice and mercy and love, those things are important? I mean, it, it sounds like that would lead us a pretty long ways. Justice and mercy and love. I mean, surely, if everybody on the earth did that for like five minutes, we'd, we'd have a better place. But if that's true, if, if everything is equal, and if general revelation, if this general way of knowing about God is enough, then the question becomes, what am I doing up here? Right? What, are we, what are we doing? Why is there a cross on our altar this morning? Why, why are we singing songs about Jesus? Why aren't we just singing songs about God or about a creator or a being or a power? The answer... The hard answer sometimes is that that general revelation really isn't enough in and of itself. And this is not a sermon about how if you don't believe in Jesus, then everybody else is going to hell. Let's meet about coffee over that. I know it's a big question for a lot of people. I'm not unpacking that this morning. Thank you very much. Um, But I do want to talk about why I think there needs to be something more than just a general way of knowing about God. There needs to be something more than just saying, well, I'm going to commit to being more just and more merciful and more kind and more humble. Those things are important. But I... I'm a Christian pastor, and I'm a Christian first because I believe there's something special 
like Paul says, there's something special about this gospel that, I, that I'm not ashamed of, that, I, that I'm not ashamed to say I put my faith in because I think there's something about this story of who Jesus is. There's something about this person of Jesus Christ that gives me a picture of God that is beyond anything I could get in a general sense. I think this person of Jesus Christ, this, this story of a Savior named Jesus, it, it, it gets me, draws me in closer, lets me see God clearer than I could ever see through a sunset, through an infant, or through a myriad of other faiths in the world. So to help with this, I need somebody in the room who is really good at recognizing celebrities. Anybody? Be bold. Who is really good at recognizing celebrities? Like if I put up a picture of a celebrity, you'll be able to name them, no problem. Raise your hand. Come on. Come on. Come. I'm going to just stand. We'll stop down. Adam, thank you. Adam Schiffman, thank you. Come on up. Come on up, Adam. We've got a bunch of cowards in the room on Sunday morning. Okay. So Adam says he knows how to, Adam, come on over here. You're going to come stand right over here. Adam says he knows how to recognize celebrities. So if I put up a picture of a celebrity, you would know how to see them, right? So to make things a little bit more complicated, I want you to wear my glasses. So if y'all don't know this, I've got terrible eyesight, like seriously bad. Like I am legally blind without contacts or glasses on. Adam is going to play a game with me where he wears my glasses. They're fashionable. Look at that. Stand here. You're going to need my help walking over. Yep, there we go. Stand right there. Now turn around. And I'm going to show you some photos. And these are pretty simple. These are some famous people. So the first one is, you know, y'all can see this from where you are. Yeah? yeah it's easily recognizable. No squinting. All right, Adam, who we got? No. That was Whoopi Goldberg. Nice try. Nice try. Okay. Person number two. Yeah? We see him? Yeah? We got a good idea? All right, Adam. Who we got? Brian Cranston of Breaking Bad. Nope, that would be Ryan Gosling. I'm sure he's very, uh, very glad you mistook him for Brian Cranston. All right, two more, two more. Here's one. Okay, yep, yep, yep. Very famous. Who we got? Come on. She's in like everything. Come on. Julianne Moore. Ooh, we got close. I thought he was going to get it for a second. Nope, that'd be Julia Roberts. Last but not least, best actor on the planet, in my opinion. Anybody? Yeah? Okay. Who we got? Justin Bieber. <laughs> Take off your glasses for me. We got, there we go. Everyone get Adam, give Adam a round of applause. Thank you, Adam, for playing our game this morning. Justin Bieber. So I've got terrible eyesight. That's how I would have seen those photos if I didn't have my contacts in. General revelation, general way of knowing about God is, is like me standing there and I'm holding a person. You can tell it's somebody. You go, I think it might be Justin Bieber. And special revelation is looking at it and going, oh, that's Steve Buscemi. <laughs> okay. Beautiful Steve. Beautiful Steve. I mean, he's crying his way to the bank. You know that, right? Yeah. I love Steve Buscemi. Um, special revelation is... What it allows for us to do is it allows us to have clarity around something that at once was very blurry. You know, when we look at a sunset, when we look at our infant child, when we see the Cowboys demolish the Eagles on a regular basis, one day they'll get a Super Bowl, I'm sure. Um, when we see those things happen, we, we, we get this kind of blurry sense of who God is. We get this idea that there's this thing out there 
It's probably bigger than me. It's probably got some power. I've got some questions about it. I don't really know what to do with it, though. And special revelation and beginning to understand who Jesus is is like being able to start to put on glasses. Though it's not like the final prescription. It's like sitting down in the optometrist chair. Have you gone to get glasses before? And they do the one or two. One or two. Okay, now two or three. Two or three. Okay, now three or four. And, like, I always just pick the bigger number. Like, I never know what to do. Like, I'm like, ah, five, uh, six. Can I, can I go yet? Like, this is good enough. Can we just go? Um, but I feel like that's what life is kind of like, where we switch out a lens. We go, okay, this is getting clear. And we study a bit more, and we go, okay, this is getting a bit more clear. And we walk with Jesus a bit more, and we go, okay, five or six. Five. Okay, I think I'm at five now. Because as we begin to walk with Christ, and we study who Christ is, and we learn more about who he is and how he lived his life, we begin to get this clearer picture of God that's beyond just saying, wow, God's really big. Like, yeah. Or, wow, God's really good. Like, yeah. Or, wow, God's beyond me. Well, duh, it's God. But when we walk with Jesus, we begin to get more clarity. We begin to see clearer who God is. And, like, wouldn't it be awesome if we showed up and God was actually Steve Buscemi? That'd be so cool. Um, Sorry, that's the last I'm going to show his face, I promise. So how, do we, how is it that we begin to, to switch these lenses out? What are the lenses that we use to understand Jesus better? The first one and the primary one we use is scripture. That's why we read from it every single Sunday. We don't do this just because it's a good book. We do this because we believe that in the words of God, which this thing is, that we will begin to understand the word of God, which is who Christ is. We're going to say more about that next week, about the word of God being Jesus. Reagan's going to preach on John chapter 1 in preparation for Advent. Um, but we use scripture, we dig into scripture, not be, just because it's got pretty text, not just because it teaches us how to be better people, not just because it's got platitudes or it's got nice little quotes that we can put on our bathroom walls. We read scripture, we dig into scripture because we believe somewhere in these words, somewhere in these pages, somewhere in this story, we're going to encounter the real presence of a living Savior who wants to take hold of our life and never let go. That's why we dig into this text. It's not so that we don't open it up so that we can say, well, how, how can I, you know, be a better person tomorrow? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a good sort of blurry surface level question. A deeper question would be, how can I understand where Jesus is all the way back in the Old Testament? And how can I begin to understand that story? And how can I begin to see our, my Savior's work in those lives? And then how can I take that and connect it to my own life? And how can I begin to understand how Jesus is leading me the same way that Jesus led Abraham or Jesus led the Apostle Paul or Jesus led Esther? How can I see these things at work, right? That's, now we're getting really clear. We're starting to switch the lenses around really clearly. But our primary lens is scripture. If you think that you can pursue the Christian faith and never open this thing up, <laughs> or if you think this can take a back seat to whatever it is that you're experiencing in the world. Now, I don't believe that every ounce of truth we ever need in the world is found in this book. Now, that's a big statement to say. I do believe there is truth outside of the confines of this book, but I believe the primary truth that we find, the primary truth that we find about Jesus, is if it doesn't fit with what this book says Jesus is about, then we're probably trying to turn Jesus more into our image and trying to warp the Bible into our shape and make it fit into our whole as opposed to letting our lives and ourselves conform to the shape of the text. That being said, it is the primary lens, but it's not the only lens. See, there's some people who want to walk through the life of faith, and they say, all I need to know is right in here. Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. You ever see that? You ever see that? Bible says a lot of stuff that doesn't settle nothing for me. <laughs> Am I wrong? 
You ever read two verses in the Bible and say, that is very unsettled. I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. If that's the way you think you can go through the life, let me warn you about something. Jesus says that we ought to love God with all of our hearts and our souls and our strength and also one other thing. What is it? Our minds. Methodists are a thinking people. If you want to show up on Sunday morning and shut your brain off, you're in the wrong room. You're in the wrong room. If you want to walk through your life and say, well, I don't need to think for myself. All I need to do is just regurgitate whatever I see printed in these pages. Oh, my gosh, you're going to do so much harm. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. This is a beautiful text, and it's also a dangerous text if we don't walk hand in hand with our experiences. You are a living, breathing creation of God. God breathed life into your lungs. God put his image in your spirit. Do not discount yourself in the faithful walk with Jesus. We are not supposed to turn into printed words on a page. These things help guide and shape our lives, but we are meant to still be alive. And that means that we have to walk and experience life with this special Savior named Jesus. So here's how experience works in our lives. Number one is we start life with an inherited faith. Those infants we baptize, guess what? They're going to be raised up in the Methodist faith. Out of a quick show of hands, how many of us were raised in the Methodist church? Quick show of hands. You're raised Methodist. Okay. Looks like 30, 40% of the room. How many of us were not raised Methodist out of, out of curiosity? That is fun to see. I like that. That's exciting. Um, I mean, it's the best one. So you found your way. Good job. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you win. But we start with our inherited faith, right? Whatever that faith was. Maybe you inherit no faith. Maybe you inherit agnosticism or atheism. Maybe you inherit a different faith entirely outside of Christianity. But we, we start our lives with an inherited faith. It's this experience that's sort of handed to us that we're asked to keep. And then as we grow older, we begin to shape and form it ourselves, and we decide whether we want to hold on to it, like I did, or we decide that we want to toss it aside, or we decide that we want to shape it into something different. And that's when we begin to use our own personal experiences. We, we could talk for hours about how your personal life has shaped the way you think about God, and I believe that's a good thing. I believe that God gives us experiences to help reveal God's self to us. But then the last thing that we do, here's, here's the tricky part, is if all we do is we walk through life with this Bible and our own personal experiences, then we're still in danger. Because we can still find a way to twist this Bible into whatever we want it to be for ourselves. We say, ooh, I read this text, and that just doesn't fit with my life. You know, I don't, that, doesn't, that doesn't work with me, so I'm just going to rip that page out. And that's dangerous. And the, and the way that we prevent that from happening is we come into a Christian community, and we test our experiences with one another. We share with a sister or brother in the faith, hey, this is what I experienced recently. This is how I've been seeing God revealed recently. What do you think about that? You know, I feel like God's been saying this to me recently. What, how does that sound to you? There's something about this Christian faith, even the special revelation of Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples to go out and start churches. He says to go out and start a movement. He says to go out and be in relationship with people. There's nothing about this faith that ever called you to isolation with your Bible sitting alone in a dark room. It's not what this faith is about. You're still going to be seeing, seeing God in a pretty blurry way if that's all your faith is about. Our faith has to draw us into relationship with one another. That's why 
we meet in a room together as a people. It's why we have small group time together. It's why we have Bible study together. If it was enough for us to walk alone, then I'd just say, I'll see you all on the other side. Read your book once a week, I guess. We'll be okay. But that's not enough. Maybe God reveals God's self not just through our personal lives, but through the lives of other people. Have you ever been touched by an experience of another? Have you ever heard God revealed to a friend of yours through their experience, and that had an impact on your own faith? It's happened to me a lot. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, he said, there is no holiness but social holiness. And we're big on soup kitchens and missions and outreach, but that's not exactly what he's saying. What he's saying is, you can't pursue God alone. There is no holiness but social holiness. If you're going to pursue God, you've got to do it in community. Everything that Methodism was about when he started it was about community. And so if we want to move from a blurry general understanding of God to a crystal clear or slightly more clear or a little bit more clear than yesterday understanding of God, then we've got to be willing to dig deep into our faith Dig deep into this text, dig deep into our relationship with Jesus, dig deep into the relationships of other people. It takes work and it takes time. But what's amazing is by the end, we can actually put on some lenses and go, oh my gosh, God, I see you. I really see you. And it might be for a moment, and it, and it might be just an image, and it might be just a single, single scene. But, but you see it so clearly, and it's like the sunset doesn't even compare anymore. So this week, as we're going into Thanksgiving, as we're heading into this season of preparation called Advent, I want us to think about, I want us to think about how it is that we understand Jesus just this year. Because the general stuff is good, but it's not enough. I don't believe it's enough. I believe that we need to take this gospel that Paul talks about seriously and we need to begin to look at Jesus seriously and study him and study his love and study his mercy and study his justice and study his humility. Because that's going to give us a clearer picture of God. And so my question for you is, when you look at Jesus this week, just take this week. It's Thanksgiving, right? We're all supposed to sit around and talk about what we're thankful for. And we all sit at the table, I'm thankful for my family. You say to your family, you know, of course, you have to say that, you know. I love you, mom and dad. They're second row, I should say that. Um, But while you're thinking about what you're thankful for, I wonder if you could think of just one, just one lens that you see Jesus with that makes you really thankful this year. Is it Jesus' ability to reconcile? Ah, he's a reconciler. He builds bridges amongst people that are so divided. Is, is it, do you see Jesus through the lens of mercy and the, and the fact that he doesn't shame people? Even when he's giving difficult teaching, he doesn't, he doesn't give them shame. Maybe that's the lens you need to look through this week. Maybe, maybe this week you look through the lens of just self-sacrifice. And that's the one that hits me the most is I picture Jesus up on the cross wearing a crown of thorns. And I just think, how could I ever do that? I'm so thankful for that image. I'm so thankful for that Jesus. So maybe this week you're thankful for infant Jesus. You're thankful for new beginnings and new hope. Maybe you're thankful for teacher Jesus and you're thankful for truth. And maybe you're thankful for cross-bearing Jesus and you're thankful for mercy and redemption. Or maybe you're thankful for risen Jesus and you just need some hope and you need some joy desperately in your life. And you should keep looking at sunsets. 
and you should keep going out in the morning and watching the sunrise, and you should hold babies and cuddle them, and we should all pray for Chaz Green. But the general stuff is good, but it's, it's never going to be enough. It's never going to give us the picture that we're looking for. And I earnestly believe we find that in Jesus Christ. And we don't have to do it all at once. So this week, just pick a lens. Pick a lens and find something about Jesus to be thankful for. And let that work on you this Advent season. See what that does for your faith. See if that doesn't give you a clearer picture of who God is in a month or two or three. Let's pray. Holy and precious God, a God who reveals yourself to a limited people, a God who gives us sunsets and new life, willow trees, sand dunes. gives us so much good in this world that we can see and we can taste and we can touch and we can smell. God, we thank you for giving us a world that communicates your love to us simply by living in it. And God, we thank you for giving us the person of Jesus Christ so that we might see clearly what before was a blurry vision. God, this morning as we prepare our hearts and our minds for a week of gratitude, let us have a special heart for those who are facing their first Thanksgiving without a loved one, for whom the holidays are not a joyous occasion, but something to get through. God, allow us to be the hands and feet of Christ. Allow us to walk with justice and mercy and humility so that they might feel your love this year. God, this week, allow us to find an image of your son that speaks to us today whether that's an image of mercy or justice or redemption or sacrifice or love or truth. Maybe it's a message of grace. Allow us to draw close, to focus hard, and to be thankful for just a small piece of the clear image of you. you. We thank you. We humbly ask that you walk with us as we leave this place. All of this we pray and we say in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.